0: Welcome to Into the Future Of, I'm your host, Ben Meisner, and in this episode, we're headed on an imaginative journey into the future of learning. I'm here with Dr. Philippa Hardman, creator and founder of DOMS, an evidence-based learning design process. DOMS uses learning science to help people to design learning experiences that are proven to 10 times the average levels of learner motivation and mastery. Phil, it's a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Hi, Ben. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me along.
0: So, Phil, you have more than 20 years of experience in learning science and in designing learning experiences. How did you discover your passion for this space?
1: Yeah, great question. And uh, yes, I have been doing this for a long time. I worked it out the other day, I think it's like 26 years. Um, so I'm very old. Um, but yeah, I am definitely passionate about this area. And I think from, like the origin story of the passion is, is that uh, my background is in higher education. So I am an academic by training. I'm still um, affiliated at the University of Cambridge. Um, so I'm still very much into my academic research and, and teaching. But what the situation is that was that um, I started teaching during uh, my PhD, as students often do. We get the teaching load of the people who'd rather be doing their research, and actually, what t- it turned out that I really loved this part of the experience as a teacher. Um, when I kind of defaulted to the, the kind of traditional approach, uh, the lecture-based approach, and what I found is that um, I was experiencing what my colleagues were experiencing, which was relatively low levels of attraction relatively low levels of engagement amongst those who did show up and not optimal results as in not everybody was getting a first class um like score on their um essays and exams for example so the question I asked myself was like well why why um, and so I started to do some digging and started to shift I was a historian by by training but I started to shift more and more into this world of uh, that I refer to as learning science so it's a combination of of um like psychology, uh, cognitive behavioural research, teaching and learning research, lots of like interdisciplinary approach. And what I found is that there are formulas for the design of really great learning experiences. So we know how humans learn, and we know from the research how to optimise a learning experience to get learner outcomes. By which I mean. Uh, retention, engagement, uh, achievement, satisfaction, just fulfillment as human beings. And so my passion really comes from an amount of frustration that there appeared to be back then and still now um, a lack of intersection between what we know about how humans learn and how we teach humans. And what I've done since then is to explore this on a much broader level. So I continue to explore it within higher education, but I also work with K-12, uh, learning and development, so in the, the like workplace work, um, and more informal learning experiences like online courses, for example. And what I found is, is a similar pattern. And so, yeah, what drives me is, is, is fundamentally the fact that the way that we design learning experiences is broken. Uh, I want to help to um, find out what is the solution to that, as in what is a great learning experience. And actually, we will be lots of different things. But also, I'm very passionate about the fact that we need to just bring two things together and then things get better. Uh, so, yeah, my mission is to try to do that by making it much easier to apply the learning, like the science of learning to the art of learning experience design.
0: Right. Fascinating. So... What is it that motivates you today to continue your research into effective education given that 26 or so years has passed since that initial passion was lit in that lecture room or in that setting?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, because it is a long time, isn't it? I think there's two things. So one is that the problem persists. And so it continues to fascinate me that we, those, these two worlds just have not intersected. There was a part of me when I, was, you know, back when I was 18, 19, first exploring this, thinking like, there must be people working on this. There must be uh, developments happening. There must be examples elsewhere where different and better things are happening in classrooms. But in fact, what i found is, of course, there are pockets of experimentation and of excellence. And this only confirms that we do know what great learning experiences look like and we can deliver them. But fundamentally, we we remain shackled to an approach to learning, which is what I refer to as the chalk and talk approach. So it's a I stand up and tell you lots of things because I know lots of things. And then you probably um, show like achieve success by showing me that you can tell it me back, that you can recall it and regurgitate it, restructure it. But fundamentally, I'm testing your ability to absorb the knowledge I've transferred to you. So there's a knowledge transfer pedagogy. And that is still the case. So whether you look at um, higher ed, K-12, MOOCs, uh, L&D, workshops, events, Fundamentally, the thing that connects them all together is the continuation of this of this approach. And so that's part of it. It's that the, my job isn't done yet. Um, and I have have mm-hmm. um, worked harder and harder to try to, to help to turn the tides. Um, and that's what my DOMS framework is all about. It's a way of anybody really accessing the science of learning to change how they design learning experiences. But that problem still exists. So learning design is still broken. I think the other part of it is that things are changing. So we are seeing more and more experimentation. We are seeing more and more application of the learning science research and more and more appreciation of the need to design a learning experience. To not just think, well, I know this thing and these people want to want to learn this thing. So if I just kind of share everything I know, then they will absorb it and, and, and we're all good. So small changes are happening both in the the world of like pedagogy so how we think about how we design experiences but also technology and i've been particularly excited as you can imagine by the rise of ai and G- chat gpt i'm sure we'll get to that so it's both a combination like my persistence is a combination of the fact that not enough is changing but enough is changing to keep me like to, to reinforce my 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 hypothesis that it is possible to uh, disrupt and transform education in a way that will make it possible for anybody to achieve really great learning outcomes in the way that we promise when we design and deliver learning experiences.
0: Right, so I need to ask you because I think both you and I would have been brought up with Chalk and Talk and probably everyone else we know. What's wrong with Chalk and Talk and what do some of the alternatives look
1: like? Yeah, so Chalk and Talk um, can be effective so chalk and talk can be effective for people who are good at chalk and talk. And this was one of the problems with the MOOC, because the MOOC uh, promised to revolutionise everything, but what it did was digitise chalk and talk. And for some people that worked, but only for those people who ironically were already served by the higher ed institutions that produced MOOCs, because they're good at listening and regurgitating and then like ticking the box. Um, so it works for some people in the sense that they are able to hear information and then regurgitate it back. It doesn't work in the sense, for anybody, in the sense that it doesn't lead, like research shows, that it doesn't lead to any significant impact on our core capabilities. On, our, on the skills that we actually promise to deliver, particularly in higher education, through learning. So things like uh, critical thinking, originality, leadership skills, communication skills, all of those things are not optimal. Now, that's not to so say that chalk and talk doesn't give us an amount of that, but it's not optimal. And so... It served, it served us all well, I'm sure. Like, there is an irony to the fact that I'm here criticising it, and here I am also benefiting from it <laughs> at the same time as an academic. However, it only works within a system that values, uh, like, ticking boxes. So because I was good at writing essays and, and responding to exam questions, here I am with my certificate that gets me this job and then goes on to do this thing. But fundamentally like there is a like that system is broken. It's almost a game that we go through. We step through these different steps and we, we write things down and then we get a certificate that gets us a job, but we're not work ready. And so yeah. that the system of knowledge transfer is broken, not just pedagogically, but I think also like economically. And the World Economic Forum will you know, have spoken at length for many, many years about how education needs to a be- do a better job of producing skills as well as knowledge. So that's another sense in which it's broken. And I think in terms of, uh, well, what do the alternatives look like? If you zoom right out... Um, the, probably the easiest way to conceptualize it is to reposition the lecturer as a coach and so instead of spending the sixty 90 minutes whatever it is you have uh, standing at the front and telling them everything you know telling the students everything you know about X um, if you instead go in pose them a challenge a problem a um, a project of some sort and you coach them through resolving that problem then what's happening in that scenario is that instead of learning through osmosis which basically just doesn't happen if it does happen it only leads to very short-term retention instead of learning through osmosis you're learning through experience and through dialogue so you're doing a thing You are having dialogue with probably other students and also with the professor, and out of the end of it comes um, much because of that. There's like a lot of head. There's a heady mix going on there of different instructional strategies: active learning, problem-based learning, comparative learning, um, experiential learning, because you're doing something. Out of the back end of that comes much deeper memorization, um, understanding, mastery, and skills development. So, yeah, put really simply, it's a shift from giving uh, – I guess it, the one way you could say it is that instead of giving all the answers, you, you give questions and you coach people through to getting an answer. And I've done quite a lot of research, like experimenting with what that looks like for different age groups, for different subjects, for different sorts of objectives and outcomes, um, in formal education, in L&D workspaces and this kind of thing. And in all cases, that shift in mindset – an approach has led to better outcomes to the outcomes that we're trying to achieve which are around like engagement um acquisition of knowledge and development of skills and confidence so if i could change one thing i'd probably just get everybody to uh it's easier said than done as well because uh, it's quite a skill shift for a teacher but but yeah to shift their mindset from that of lecturer to that of coach
0: I love what you're saying, because that was my experience of school as well. I did well at school, but I felt like it was a game testing me on the game, the material of the syllabus, like learning that was the game and being able to demonstrate that in an exam was the, you know, the measure of success. And then as an adult, I've learned piano. And it's been that coaching experience of of a one-on-one conversation. So even though I don't know deeply the research behind what you're saying, it rings very true for me. But my question to you is, what is the research that figured that out? Because I have this intuitive sense that what you're saying is correct. How, what type of research or studies or how did they, how did you or they or whoever figure out that um, that coaching, you know, throw up the problem and let's let's seek out the solution. How how was it figured out that that was the way to do things, or that that is the way to do things? Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think it was figured out through a combination of uh, researchers and teachers on the ground. Uh, Maybe this is best explained through like just one example, which is a guy called uh, Professor Eric Mazur, who's a professor at Harvard. And many years ago, uh, he teaches physics and many years ago he he realized, you know, and a lot of this, I should say, does does come from the world of science, where I think there is just an understanding that experience matters. Like I can talk to you a lot um, about physics, But until we get in and, you know, like do an experiment, uh, get hands on, test some stuff, we can't get to the level of answers and the level of skills that we require in order to, for example, uh, achieve a degree. And so a lot of the innovation comes from a realization that there is a problem with the system. that that comes from engineering and sciences and that kind of thing. So there's this guy, Eric Mazur, as I say, he's a professor at Harvard, and he he recognised this problem. He recognised that if he only lectured, then he was only able to take his students so far. And so what he did was he introduced um, a system that's now referred to as peer instruction. And so he still convened lectures, huge lecture theatres of students what he did was to, instead of just lecture at them the whole time, he did what I just described. And so he, he turned a lecture into a problem set. He stood at the front, demonstrated, walked through it, and then over to you, let them work independently, first of all, to, for example, make a prediction or solve an equation or do a small experiment, and then... Um, work with one another just to compare, to iterate, to correct, to build confidence before then coming back as a full group to share what they had found and really importantly get the resolution. So there is within this different approach a resolution. It's very important. It's probably more important than it is anywhere else because you've kind of let your students go wild and free a little bit and so you bring them back. By actually walking them through, you know, if it is a prediction, like this is what actually happens, you finish off the experiment and then you, you kind of ask them, were they right, were they not? And there's, but again, in that experience, there is so much brilliant stuff happening, um, and so Eric Mazur, I think, um, was motivated first and foremost just by a very practical understanding of like how I need to, t- like what I need to teach and what they need to come out with at the end. A lecture is not going to achieve this, and then what happens is that, you know, somebody like Eric. Mazur then starts to look at um, particularly like neuroscience um, and um, human psychology. And there is an emerging field. It's really, it's, I say emerging, it's emerging in academic terms. It's uh, it's um, like 30 years of research uh, into experimentation with knowledge gain and skills development. And so a combination of that pain on the ground, experimentation on the ground, backed by um, more kind of measured studies of how students learn in what conditions they learn best has has kind of brought some pockets of innovation to light which have been as I say have just really validated this hypothesis that what we do mostly is not optimized um, and that the way that we design learning experiences by defaulting to this chalk and talk is broken and that there's but that but on a more positive note that there is lots of potential for improvement and that A lot of it is proven already. The answers are there. We just need to bring together, as I say, this intersection between the design and the science bit.
0: And how how do you take these findings and try to change the educational system itself? Because it would seem to me things like universities and high schools are... Difficult places to implement new ways of doing things because the ver- like it all stems from very old school ways of doing things from hundreds of years ago. So how do you convince um, a university to move away from lectures and tu- tutorials, or how can um,
1: yeah.
0: how what's the way forward? What's the way to take these findings and actually change? Um, the way that we're taught.
1: Yeah, and and it's definitely the case. So I worked at a tech company called Aula for for a number of years, and it was our job to work with the leadership of uh, universities across the world to try to convince them of alternative ways of uh, designing and delivering learning experiences. And these people, as as you've said, are difficult to convince because they – Um, like me, I suppose, like we've all been brought up on this system and we've all gained from it, it doesn't feel broken. Um, And so it's definitely a challenge. I think the other thing that I'd like to say at this point is that the education system is very uh, unusual in its resistance to disruption and to change. So if you think about lots of different sectors, any sector really, so I don't know, music, television, uh, I don't know, how we consume, buy food, uh, everything that we do, every, like, so the fundamentals of how we behave now are significantly different today than they were even five years ago because of technology. And yet education has res- like consistently resisted disruption from technology um, and, and just changed fundamentally. And so I think it's, it's hard to predict what might happen Um, But from my on-the-ground experience of working with academics, the one thing that I have found and one of the the reasons, this is another reason that I'm still so passionate about the learning science side of things and trying to kind of break down that ivory tower and and make it easier to apply ever-changing and quite complicated learning science to the design of of learning experiences is because it can be done. And so um, at Aula, I led... um, one of the largest ever redesign like transformation projects we we redesigned 1200 courses at the university of coventry and all of those courses were were excellent courses they were performing very well Um, but the leadership at coventry university which is in the uk and very innovative one of our most innovative universities were interested to try to apply more of this learning science to what they were doing in order to optimize and so yeah, we developed a, a machine where a team of learning designers went in, like a crap team. And what we found was that when we, so we, we took a number of different routes. We It was very much like a, a product development process. So there was lots of failure and learning along the way. What doesn't work is if you just come in and go, that's broken, and then throw a different version over the wall, um, as much as that kind of saves um teachers, educators, the pain of, of needing to learn about alternative approaches and needing to design something different. It's too much change uh, all at once. The strategy that we found did work was to, um, again, we're going back to coaching methods, but to position our learning designers who are experts in pedagogy learning science to as, as coaches to f- co-create experiences with educators. And the thing that really made the difference was by arming those learning designers with the learning science. Um, and so educators are very interested in research. They are used to being evidence-based practitioners, uh, be they K-12 educators, l professionals, HE professors. And so making the conversation less about technology and change and more about pedagogy and learning science and how this can make your life easier but also improve outcomes for your students, which is fundamentally why you're here was like a an aha moment and just changed everything and so we were able to yeah transform the approach there with 1200 courses at Coventry and we delivered on the promise as well we should I should say so what we've seen there amongst those 1200 courses are improvements across all measures so in student satisfaction more educators than ever got perfect feedback scores from students. Um, there was more students reported a significantly higher than average feeling of being part of a community, which really means that like helps because it means they're motivated. Um, and student grades went up, I think, by two, two points on average. So that's a really great motivating example for me and hopefully for everyone else to show that it is possible. But you're right that it is challenging. And I don't know whether it is possible to disrupt the, the education system whether it can move fast enough. And so I'm a, a bit of a crossroads right now as to whether I should continue to focus to try to change things from within, or whether it makes more sense to try to operate outside of the formal system um, and help uh, students directly um, in order to have most impact on on the quality of and the impact of learning. So um, yeah, it's TBC, but the you know precedent, but going back to my historian days, precedent would tell me, Uh, education will only change very gradually and very slowly.
0: So, coming back for a second to this um, strategy of you're a coach and you throw out a set of questions and you work through the questions together and then you close it up. I, I personally have never sat through that experience, but to me, again, intuitively it rings true because I feel like in trying to figure things out yourself is where the true magic of learning happens. Mm-hmm. When you're, when you're spoon fed information is when your eyes roll back in the back of your head and you start falling asleep. But when mm-hmm. you sit down and you're kind of problem solving, you come alive or I do anyway, and you, you start learning. Is that why? that strategy works or is it more complicated than that why is it that throwing up a set of problems and having students work through them is effective
1: yeah and and i mean it is both simple and it can be deeply complex i mean there is a lot of there's a lot of learning science research to show that that problem based experience is a heady cocktail of different instructional strategies which are proven to be effective. So, for example, when you uh, give somebody a problem or a question, automatically your brain says, well, what do I already know on this? Like, where have I landed and why? So if they're going to be required to justify their position, not, you need to think very actively about what you know, uh, why you think you know that. Do you need to go and research that to validate that? And so already you've got all these cognitive processes happening, all of which lead to um, just more significant um, knowledge gain. So uh, memorization of the right concepts in the right way. But also understanding. So, because you're doing something with information, it translates more effectively into understanding. And so, that's just one example. And we refer to that as like metacognition, but like thinking about thinking and thinking about learning. What do we know? What do we not know? You're taking ownership of that and you're driving your own learning. And there is something also about um, the opportunity. So, when we're in the next stage, when we then We've done our problem solving solo and then we go into some sort of connected experience where we present it back again we need to think what is our position why is that my position so again it's evidence-based thinking what we're doing is just like making our brain do you know 10 20 30 things rather than just doing one thing and sitting and then that's it so active learning principles where students actively have to be involved to participate to co-construct understanding just merely the complexity of that experience, that it involves dialogue, that it involves um, reviewing, analyzing, evaluating, means that, again, we're just baking in understanding and motivation at the same time. So that's, yeah, that's the reason that that works. And and you say you haven't experienced that, but I think you have, like, for example, with your piano lessons, like there is something about uh, learning through doing, which is both motivating and leads to to mastery in a way that just learning about something in theory doesn't and so we've probably all experienced this on some level i mean i often use the analogy of uh, like playing a game so if i was to just give you a you know the the games manual for a board game it's like i'm never going to sit and read through that because as much as i love this board game like that's too much information and it's just abstract and i'm going to just switch off after page three if, I, however, I play the game with you, and then we hit a problem, or we need to understand something, and we opt into it, then suddenly that same exact same uh, content becomes helpful, becomes engaging, solves a problem, and and it be, and so I'm not a believer in in, in theories that like we you know we're in a TikTok age and we all only have a one minute attention span. I think it's actually all about how you position content, and if you reposition it f- at, from like you know uh, center stage like the purpose of the class to a tool with which to solve a problem and get to a resolution that source becomes much more is part of a much more complex uh, cognitive process and becomes much more motivating and valuable for the student so fundamentally I'd say like the problem-based approach works because it's it's a, a better way of optimizing for both motivation because if your students don't care they don't care and, and we don't design for motivation, and that's one thing that we really need to get better at because we can design for motivation, and intrinsic motivation specifically. So they want to, it's not, they're not showing up because otherwise they get told off or because they won't pass an exam. It's because they want to be here and they see value. That might be professional, it might be personal, but there's value in it for them. Um, and it, so it supports motivation. It also supports mastery. So it's not just information. What they're doing is developing lots of skills, skills that are specific to the domain. So like... In Eric Mazur's case, I'm learning about physics, but I'm also learning how to do critical thinking, communication skills, uh, evidence-backed debate, all sorts of things which are not just great for learning but just great for life. So I think, yeah, it's some sort of cocktail that optimises for both um, motivation and mastery, which makes it pretty magical.
0: So looking now to the future, where – this point in time, there's a lot going on in terms of AI. What do you think is going to happen in the ed tech space and in education generally over the next 20 years? And I know that's a a large span of time. And how much of an impact is technology going to have?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the million-dollar question, Ben. As I say, um, education has been so resistant to change. I think there we're at a crossroads with AI. I think before, education technologies until now have failed to disrupt, partly because there is not an appetite for disruption in education. There are systems of bureaucracy, of power, of organization that just are very averse to change on both a practical and a political level. But also there's a problem because ed tech, ed education technologies until now have been really disappointing. So what they have done, the MOOC's a great example, or any VLE, LMS, whatever you want to call it. Education technology has made, basically just digitized what we already do. So the MOOC, perfect example, it's a digitized lecture with maybe a discussion or a quiz at the end. The VLE is a repository for content for this knowledge transfer chalk and talk. It's so basically like a filing cabinet. Uh, I don't know if you have these elsewhere, but in the UK, there was a big hoo-ha about, You know, everyone got excited about interactive whiteboards, which are an interactive white version of a blackboard. And so I think, like, to be fair to educators, the technologies that have been offered to them have not been that disruptive and therefore not really worth, I mean, they're effectively an extra layer of, like, time and effort and also, like, technology jeopardy. Because, like, is it switched on? You know, like, it's saying no input. Like, it's not offered enough value. That's been part of the problem uh, with ed tech. And so I do wonder if we built education technology to be significantly better. So if we built education technology that enabled educators to be better educators in the way that they want to be that made their students more engaged, more driven, uh, and led to better outcomes. Maybe they'd get more excited about it. But that, of course, requires us as the world of ed tech to build better technologies. And one thing I often say is, you know, I just wish there were more ed people in ed tech. That's been a huge problem until now. And so as to the the impact of AI, I think it will impact. I think it's already impacting. And so we're seeing this... Uh, We're seeing this three-part reaction so far across formal education, so K-12, higher ed, further ed, that kind of thing. So we've got, like, Team Bannett, who are just like, yeah, Let's invest in GPT-0 and just forget this is happening. Uh, then we've got Team Avoid It, and they're a little bit more uh, in denial and have reacted in the immediate term by like, gathering students back into the classroom and getting them to complete coursework and exams or, or oral examinations like in the room under the watchful eye of the educator, which is never going to last because it's entirely unscalable, and already those universities are having to U-turn on that decision. And then there's the... For me, most exciting team, my team, uh, just to be very clear on where I stand, uh, which is Team Embrace It. And there are some very, very interesting experiments going on. I've been doing lots myself. If you're interested, you can see them on my LinkedIn. You can follow me there. But every week I'm experimenting with how can we use AI to make education better, as in better for the learner. I think edtech has always been built to, to sell to education leadership and to teachers um, not to not to impact learners, and so I, that's where where I am really interested to see where it goes. What we're seeing so far, though, is is a repeat of the same pattern. By which I mean, so far, and it's not been long because it's only been maybe one quarter. But so far, what we've seen is any tool that's described as a, an education tool for a, an AI tool. Sorry, sorry, an AI tool for education is like the MOOC, like the LMS, like the VLE, built to make what we already do faster. So synthesizer, etc., cetera, make, lets you t- uh, record videos at 10 times the speed. Um, and there's a, a huge number of uh, automated quizzing tools that will take content and turn them into multiple choice quizzes. As an instructional strategy, the video plus quiz is broken and so there is a, there is a, a world in which ai actually drives us further down a rabbit hole that is distracting us from impacting our students and that's a very real risk because it, this is a commercial environment and people are much more likely to buy a thing that makes their life easier tomorrow rather than disrupt a system but there is an alternative scenario where we use this as an opportunity to say do you know what like the the how do we um use AI as a tool to enable people to design better learning experiences and to understand, like to make that faster as well as um, deliver on results quickly. And as I say, some experimentation is happening. We are seeing a shift already away from regurgitation because ChatGPT can do that uh, to these more higher-order, higher-level kind of problem-based activities where, for example, educators are asking students to uh, critique what ChatGPT generates, to validate it using evidence uh, to see whether or not ChatGPT, like how is how reliable is it, or, or get two versions and tell me which is most reliable and why. These experiences powered by ChatGPT and required by ChatGPT because it can do the other stuff automatically uh, are much closer to this ideal of this problem-based, more interactive, more active scenario, and so I think we're at a crossroads, and we either go down one path, and we use AI to build faster horses, to use this Ford analogy that I, I like, or we go down a different path, and we use uh, AI as an opportunity to rethink everything. So not faster horses, we're going to build a car. We're going to get do something that is truly transformative and that changes the world. Changes the world, but is new and require like will require an amount of. Uh, appetite for change. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the the probably frustrating answer is it's TBC, what we'll, what we'll be doing in 20 years. But I would imagine that we will be, we are, for me, AI is more like the printing press than it is a VLE. It's going to impact education. I think it's beyond education's power to repress the AI. I also think it's part of our responsibility as educators to make sure that our students are AI literate, that they are consuming and working with AI with critical minds, that they're critical consumers, users, and all those things. And so I think we'll see the rise of AI education, and I, as in education for students and for educators about risks, benefits, how to prompt it, and this kind of thing. And I think we'll also see just increased generation of content, generation of activity, more personalized experiences, and this kind of thing. But as I say, what I'm most interested in is, are we going to just use this to do what we already do in a slightly different way, or are we going to do something entirely different? And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what happens. Well,
0: you must be on some level kind of secretly happy that the old educational system is getting a bit of a shake-up and it can't do anything about it because Chat GPT is like the naughty boy in the classroom disrupting things yeah, and yeah. it feels like it might not be the last, you know, the last, um, the end of it. It may still evolve a little further and really shake things up even more.
1: No, absolutely. And I do love it for that. Like for me, it's, um, it's less about is chat does chat gpt i feel we're distracted by like very very small fry conversations about like how reliable is it that matters but like my question is like yes, how disruptive is it and i love that it's 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 a force really that can't be reckoned with or has to be reckoned with but can't be ignored so i think team Bannett and team uh, avoid it are going to have to at some point embrace it and understand that this is going to change how everybody designs and delivers learning experiences and there is a risk that that formal education, so K-12, higher ed, is left behind, that by not embracing AI, they leave open alternative education routes that might be more attractive to students. So one thing that I'm really interested in that's already happening out in Web3 in the metaverse is um, sort of direct to educator learning pathways where um, students say, look, I want this kind of job, Um, and this is another problem with education right now, which we don't talk about, but it's really hard to know. Okay. I want to achieve this thing. Which learning experience do I choose from? And that's only going to get more difficult with AI. If we just produce loads more stuff and loads more courses, it's like, well, what's the best route and what these, um, kind of blockchain pathways enable a student to do is to, um, identify. So for example, I want to be a UX UI designer. Uh, they then, uh, Proceed down a, a pathway that's designed by a company that understands what that what great looks like, and it's a very hands-on, very dialogue-based experience. And then at the end, instead of getting a certificate that says you can write an essay, you produce a whatever, like you've built a website, and you have skills, you have experience, but you can get, you can use that, like that, almost like a badge in your portfolio to go direct to an employer. And so I think there's a there's, there's also a disruptive. Energy to AI that sits outside of the uh, the system, which might actually change how we think about uh, what education is, what its purpose is, what its relationship to work is, and and how it you know how it impacts the learner. It might be that we just see the growth of education outside of the education system, which is um, would be another interesting development.
0: So, last question for you, Phil, and that is, how might chat GPT and similar types of resources be used to design better learning experiences in the future?
1: Yes. So, I love this question. So, I'm already experimenting with this. I've just done a bit of a crowdsource experiment on LinkedIn where I said to people, I've sort of built a machine that might be able to design, optimize learning experiences, give me, like, do you want to be in? So I've now got a pile of, uh, like, design briefs, uh, and I'm going to see if it works. But effectively, what what AI is able to do is to take uh, inputs. So it's machine learning. Machine learning always just takes inputs, uh, applies rules, and then produces outputs. And so in that way, you can imagine a learning design experience can be uh, instead of being one size fits all it can be very tailored so I for example have already just using chat GPT managed to build a machine where I can say okay the learners are uh, of this demographic these psychographics are like these are our motivations these are their uh, you know their ages their locations things that will cause them friction the reason they want to be here is and you can put in all of this data about who your learners are as well as what you want to teach them and then the machine learning bit in the middle, it goes like that's pumped into the machine. The machine um, applies learning science. So it applies what we know from the research, but also from data. We have loads of data that we just can't even begin to analyse right now almost because there's too much of it. But we have quite a lot of data to show pathways which have, like at scale, this data will show us like what are the optimal routes from A to B. And so if we combine that data into this really interesting um, large language model, LLM, we can then uh, output an optimized learning experience, both for an individual and for an outcome. And so I think think in the immediate term, how we design learning experiences will be impacted by AI, by, we'll see loads of content being produced, loads of videos, loads of quizzes. People will put in, will input their uh, PowerPoints and get out, you know, a PowerPoint with quizzes embedded in it. And we'll get excited about that because it saves us a bit of time. But I do think in time we will see AI used to do this more complex thing, which is to like fundamentally just to go back to what I've been saying today is, is about not just making faster horses and doing what we do already faster. And like, so you can have, you know, more leisure time and an extra cup of tea. It's changing fundamentally how we think about learning experiences and, and the quality of the underpinning principles that we use to, to design them.
0: That's Dr. Philippa Hardman, creator and founder of DOMS. Phil, thank you so much.
1: It's a pleasure, thanks, Ben.